Today I have the absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Timothy Buckman to uh, University of Maryland to talk to our group. It's a little bit of background. Dr. Buckman is the founding director of Emory's Critical Care Center, which is integrating ICUs throughout the Emory healthcare system. It, they have assembled clinicians, teachers, and investigators from diverse disciplines to deliver the right care right now, um, every time, which is a, a term that he coined. Dr. Buckman is the past president of the Shock Society, the Society for Complex Acute Illness, and the Society for Critical Care Medicine, and the latter being the largest organization of critical care professionals worldwide. His research has spanned the bench-to-bedside continuum, including NIH-funded studies of physiologic dynamics, of patient monitoring, of the genetics of sepsis, and of ICU end-of-life care. Before joining Emory, he served as the Edison Professor of Surgery and Director of Acute and Critical Care Surgery at WashU in St. Louis. Prior to his 15 years on the faculty there, he directed the surgical intensive care unit and founded the trauma service at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, where he completed his surgical training. And as you're aware from yesterday, he uh, did uh, training at, uh, here at Shock Trauma as well. So he's a, a very busy man, and I appreciate his time. And he's currently, um, most relevant to right now, is the editor-in-chief of uh, our uh, primary journal in critical care, which is uh, the critical care medicine. And so thank you so much, Dr. Buckman, for being here. It's a privilege. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. So this is the fun talk, because there's a little bit of current data and a little bit of speculation about the future. Once again, the disclosures and the disclaimers. Uh, I do things for various societies and so forth. Emory collects the money, but you need to know about it. The views I express today are mine. They're not Emory's. They're not the societies. They're not the journals. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about our CMS award. Uh, so I'm going to share some data. CMS requires that I tell you that the content may not necessarily reflect their views, uh, even though they're the ones who generated most of the data. All right. Uh, this is the talk map. Uh, change is really the only constant in our business. I, I, was here 30 years ago, and shock trauma today looks nothing like, save for the pink scrubs, it looks nothing like uh, the, old, the old unit. Uh, but what I want to do is, is talk a little bit about sort of how we see the manpower issue, talk a little bit about the technology and remote critical care, a little bit about where I see changes in the sociology of what we do, how we interact with one another on a daily basis for the benefit of the patient. Talk a little bit about technology uh, as uh, uh, what I've learned from aviation and, and how technology plays into what we do. Uh, and then finally putting it all together and talk a little bit about precision medicine in the acute care space and some of the things that I'm looking forward to doing and, and actually seeing in my professional lifetime. So this is what ICUs looked like eh, 50, 60 years ago. These are sort of pictures from, from the environment, not from here, not from Hopkins. Many of these were from Blodgett Medical Center, but uh, a couple of things. Uh, we, we had beds just like you have the Craig beds upstairs, but you know these were roto beds. We would actually rotisserie the patients in these things. We understood position was important. Um, nurses station with lots of nurses um, actually all sitting there doing charting. And you know it's the bedside and they had addressographs and glass bottles. 
The thing is, that was the ICU. And if somebody actually looks like this in the ICU, uh, yeah, they're not in an ICU anymore. That doesn't look anything like Dan Hur's uh, LRU upstairs. But that's what the way the ways things sort of looked. And uh, across town at that time, in the old Baltimore City Hospital, Peter Saffer came up with the idea that there really needed to be a dedicated group of physicians. Because if you go back to this slide, there were no doctors in this slide. Okay? There, were, there were no doctors who hung around ICs. It was just another nursing unit organized by nurses. And Peter said, you know, we really need to have a dedicated group of physicians looking after the patients. And this idea was echoed in Hal Weil's initial presidential address saying, you know, it, it really is important that we have uh, clarity on, on who's going to attend the patient in a teaching hospital when there's a critical event or critical patient at 2 in the morning or even at 3 in the afternoon. And Hal felt very strongly that the operational approach involved putting senior doctors at the bedside when and where needed. Um, which sort of gets us to what the manpower situation looked like around that time. Uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, Secretary of uh, Health, Education, and Welfare, forerunner of HHS, Joe Califano, basically started looking around and saying, what did the physician supply look like in the United States? Did, did we have too many, not enough, too few? And there was actually conversation about there being a physician surplus. And part of the things that drove the physician surplus was the idea that we had too many MDs for what was going to be a very tightly managed care system. This was the picture that was going to be the hospital parking lot, okay? Uh, completely empty except for maybe this one car down here and one car down here that would be the on-call physician and the on-call nurse. Uh, so there was a certain amount of disconnect between what the country thought, we have too many doctors, not enough patients, yet there were all these sick people floating around. Well, a decade later, this appeared in, uh, in uh, JAMA. Peter Pronovost, Derek Angus, and Todd Dorman basically said, you know, we've looked around and maybe it's a good idea that Peter Saffer had to actually have ICU doctors at the bedside. So with a concern about physician surplus and empty parking lots, people said a lot of people are going to want to gravitate into critical care. This is the big idea that was going to happen. Unfortunately, the numbers didn't seem to bear that out, at least on a predictive basis. Around the time that paper came out, the compact study was commissioned by the four major critical care societies, SCCM, ATS, the chest physicians, um, and uh, the critical care nurses. And uh, uh, the uh, study was commissioned as the Committee on Manpower for Pulmonary and Critical Care Societies, and the data came out in a pretty frightening way. Uh, again, this was published in JAMA. I'm sure you've all seen this, uh, this particular graph, saying here is the supply of intensivists. The prediction was, was that even though there were going to be, quote, too many physicians, they weren't going to want to go into critical care. And this blue band here had to do with demand 
driven by the fact that the population was aging. Fact of the matter is, is that old people use critical care services. And uh, this study was published in JAMA and said, holy cow, by the time we get to where we are today, which is sort of symbolized by this blue arrow here, there's going to be a separation. Not enough doctors, too many patients. Well, this how, somehow made it to the U.S. Congress, and the Congress said that can't be possible. There are too many physicians. So they commissioned their own study, which was the HRSA study that was published in 2006, and they had somewhat different numbers and somewhat different models, but the bottom line was, was that there was going to be a shortfall. There was going to be a delta between what was needed because of the aging population demand for critical care services and what we had. Well, this led to a conference called the Promise Conference. It was held in September of 2005. And what the Promise Conference did, they brought in all the stakeholders they could think of. And they brought in like 37 groups. I think only one or two groups refused to, to show up. Uh, and because there were so many diverse opinions, there wasn't a lot of a consensus. But there was consensus on one thing. Nevertheless, there was broad agreement on some relatively controversial topics. One, the need to regionalize and tier the adult critical care system. And in concert, some critical care services will be provided by non-critical care boarded physicians such as hospitalists and emergency physicians. They didn't, never predicted emergency medicine critical care at that time. Uh, but and even in some cases, and I've triple underlined it there, physician extenders. The idea that some of the things that were being done in the ICU really could be done by people who weren't actually carrying the MD at a label. Well, by the early 1990s, advanced practice providers were being incorporated into some ICUs. This is a paper from Chest in 1991. Remember, that's like 26 years ago now, more a quarter century. And they took uh, physician assistants. They did three months of additional training, a two-year evaluation. Uh, they looked at various folks, and they said they concluded that properly trained physician assistants may have a role in providing health care in ICU settings. This is really quite revolutionary for the time. And this was even more important if you look at what the fill rates were on critical care fellowships. Now, these are data from a decade ago. Understand you're looking at stuff now from a decade ago, but these are ACGME data. These were anesthesia critical care fellowships. They were filling to about the 50% rate. Uh, internal medicine critical care was filling about 80%. Surgical critical care was only about 75%. And even many of the pulmonary slots were going unfilled, and people could not get docs in. And people saw the tidal wave of baby boomers getting to Medicare age in the future. Um, Walt Boyle and I uh, at WashU were also looking at what was happening to our trainee population. And while we had the same total number of trainees between 2001 and 2009, there's a number in the back, the senior folks in purple over here, they were going to zero, okay? And uh, the uh, uh, PGY1s, they were starting to show up in the unit. So that the average skill level of the trainees who were coming into the unit, the experience they were getting, they were falling off as well. Well, the problem is, of course, if your only experience in the ICU was sort of watching from the sidelines as an intern, likelihood we could recruit into the profession just dived. All right? So people started saying, 
around this time. This is, again, the middle of the last decade. So if the physicians aren't showing up, what's happening to APPs, advanced practice providers, either PAs or NPs, showing up in the, uh, in the uh, critical care workforce? Well, this was the total workforce number. I don't want to give you the idea that this is, uh, that this is the critical care. The total workforce number uh, in a paper that uh, Ruth put in. Ruth, of course, is this year's president of the SCCM. And they looked at the rise in the rate of uh, physician assistants and in nurse practitioners. These two dots were projections. This is what they thought was going to happen by 2015. Now, if we actually look at the data, this is what happened. Okay? These are data taken from the uh, nurse practitioner community, the physician assistant community. And you can see this massive rise in the number of nurse practitioners. That's why you don't have that many mid-level, mid-age nurses at the bedside of the ICU anymore. All the young nurses got their five years in, so I'm going to go be an NP. And you have this sort of U-shaped curve in most units where you have very senior nurses, very junior nurses, and there's this band in the middle where you can't find folks. This is where they've gone. The PA projections were about right on. So I, I know what you're thinking. Now, here we are in 2017. Actually, how many practicing FTE ICU doctors are there? Well, if we go back to the most current data, and the most current data from the American Board of Medical Specialties, 2013-2014, and we add up anesthesia, pulmonary, peds, and surgery, uh, and we say the total there is about 15,000, but of course, most people with pulmonary boards don't work in the uh, pulmonary critical care boards, they don't work in the ICU. So the actual working number is some number smaller than that. Best guess, we probably have about 10 grand practicing intensivists in the United States. It's a rough number, but when you actually do the sums and differences of FTEs, because remember, very few of these people are full-time critical care, period, you're probably somewhere around 10 grand. So now we get into the question of, uh, what are the number of APPs in the system who are practicing critical care? And as of about 2013, again, the AP, the, the physician assistants estimated there were about 2,600 in the ICUs. The nurses estimated about 7,500. 7, Their grand total is about 10,000. What I've just told you is that if we look at the critical care workforce today, not here at Shock Trauma, but if we look globally across the United States, we think that the number of APPs and the number of critical care physicians who are actually practicing critical care are probably pretty close to equal. The workforce has changed. All right. Now, why is this and what's going on? Well, you get into the issue of how long does it take to develop competencies to be a critical care provider. And if you go down this first column, the, the physician column, you got to get your undergraduate degree, then spend four years in medical school, and then roughly speaking, six years doing residency and fellowship. The numbers are always, it ends up being 10 years, 120 months. If you look at the time to train a physician assistant just to get them through PA school, you've got that 27 months or uh, get through APRN school, you've got about the same, but obviously you don't have the right level of competencies in there. You actually have to do something about the preparedness for transition to practice, and what you end up doing is giving them a residency. Call it 12 months of 
additional focus critical care training beyond the primary medical degree. It's the same thing that you do in a residency or fellowship. It's just additional focus training. However you slice and dice the numbers, you can train somebody to do 90% of what we do as physicians in about a third the time. And the labor economy gets this. Costs less to train them, gets them into practice sooner, so we, we have a dynamic going on. All right. That's what led us to create a residency at Emory uh, precisely for these folks. Um, and, and it raises the question of how sure are we actually of intensivists, of intensivist doctors in the United States? There are at least three different answers to this question. If you look at the, uh, at the leapfrog data, which we're talking about an intensivist in every pot, and you look at the United States, you can see that uh, you're pr pretty well off if you're, uh, if you're living in Minnesota. They got plenty of intensivists up there to staff the hospitals. Uh, Arizona's not bad, but, but for most of the rest of the country, um, they have a lot of difficulty meeting the intensivist physician standard. They can't get enough ICU doctors in to take care of the patients. Well, that has uh, you know, been countered. Jeremy Kahn and Gordon Rubenfeld have suggested that ICUs are full of patients who don't need to be there. Let's just get the riffraff out of the ICU and, and uh, we'll have plenty of doctors. Uh, also, uh, think about alternative workforces. The response to that was, this is Steve Pastorius and, and Vlad Kvetin writing, saying the crisis is real, not imagined. Uh, the current supply is low and people don't like working in the ICU because it's hard work and nights and weekends and holidays. And we suggested that you actually have to start looking differently. You have to start looking at regionalizing care and especially the use of telemedicine and how do we keep patients who shouldn't be in the ICU in the first place out of the ICU altogether. Aye. The third view is that the medical community has responded. They have started to train more intensivists. So these are data looking at uh, the annual production of potential critical care physicians based on reported fellowship numbers. And uh, again, if you, if you look at the production rates, a decade ago we were producing around uh, 831 a year. Uh, that, that's increased considerably. Now, how these numbers came up, we counted the one-year fellowships, two-year fellowships divided by two, three-year fellowships divided by three, and so forth, get sort of a production rate because the, you know, the ACGME reports residents enrolled. But at least you get the idea that, that we, we've increased the production rate. These people will be coming into practice at a time that the big hump of the baby boomers, you know, we're about midpoint now. We, we've been... You know, we're, we're now about seven years into the 10,000 Americans a day turning 65. They'll continue on and these physicians will be needed. What'll happen if the production rate continues? The workforce, unclear. But at least it gives you an idea of what the demand has been, what the supply looks like today, and what the future is probably gonna look like. In our environment, the APP is a fully integrated member of the team, okay? Uh, we, we are completely founded on the idea that the key people at the bedside are the critical care nurse and the advanced practice provider. I'm just there as the coach. And uh, the story I've told you so far then is that initially ICUs have no physicians. 
then it was decided we needed physicians, then there weren't enough physicians, then we had a new class of workers with the APPs. The physicians are starting to play catch up, but in the meantime, all of the tasks of care have started to be reallocated. Now, when I was walking around the units earlier today, saw people with the label nurse practitioner, very clear they are doing a lot of the work that was traditionally done by physicians. How much they're going to do in the future, how we're going to reallocate those tasks among the professions, I think is an open question. But when they were looking at the problem of not enough doctors, uh, Another report came out in 2004, Mark Kelly wrote this one, and suggested at the time that continuous remote intensive staffing with video conferencing and computer-based data transmission might reduce ICU and hospital mortality rates, complications, reduce stay and cost. This idea, of course, originated 1964, I went to this World's Fair, there's a picture phone at the New York World's Fair. At the time, a coast-to-coast -coast call from New York to Los Angeles, three minutes in current dollars, would be a $360 call. Okay? Now, new technology costs a lot of money, but uh, the idea caught on that you might be able to use closed-circuit video conferencing um, and uh, this caught on initially in Cleveland at this small hospital where they had sick patients but no doctors. So they did an experiment in healthcare delivery, uh, and they concluded in the mid-1970s that telemedicine can enable an intensivist to consult with patients in the ICU of a small hospital with no physician of its own. Uh, this is what the setup looked like. You can see the massive camera and the huge stacks giving you a little 17-inch you know, video monitor, but, but that was the state of the art at the time. These two guys who actually came out of Hopkins, Mike Breslow and Brian Rosenfeld, said, you know, there's probably a business model here. Let's see if we can standardize and systematize uh, the care. And today, uh, there are about 50 EICU programs in the United States. There's a program uh, that's come online in London. There's another program that's coming online in the next couple of months in, uh, in Tokyo. Uh, so th there really is a very large move to deploy telemedicine tools and see if they can be used effectively in service of patients. Uh, in the United States today, these were the data as uh, all the way through 2011, the percentage of hospitals and the ICU beds that were covered. These are the most current data that I have for 2016. The red dots here correspond to these points on here. Methodology is slightly different, but uh, the key thing is, is that currently in the United States, we're monitoring about 500 hospitals and uh, somewhere to the tune of about 11,000 beds. It's about one out of every six, one out of every seven ICU beds in the United States today is leveraged with telemedicine to deal with the provider gap. Those are just the numbers. What we do in the EICU, it's population health for the most severely ill. We're not trying to take care of the patients in their entirety. We're trying to provide coverage during unsocial hours primarily and detect problems as they occur early. Detecting, tracking, classifying, and projecting into the future, deciding what to do, assigning a task, acting, and then evaluating. 
there, there's plenty of data out there. I'm not going to go over all the articles that are out there. Too much time is going to be involved. But I do want to bring your attention to Craig Lilly's article that was uh, published in 2011 that basically said if you introduce EICU into your environment, you manage it effectively, you do a couple of things. First, you drop the bottom out of the hospital and the ICU mortality rate. Uh, and second, you make significant improvements in the hospital and ICU length of stay. Improved outcomes, better experience of care. Now, of course, everybody was suspicious of this because it's you know internal evaluation, internal data. This was a before-after study with all the confounders of before-after studies. It was a pre-intervention group and a tele-ICU group. Nevertheless, these are these are reasonably significant numbers, enough for folks to want to take a look. Um, the thing that blocks people from thinking about this is it costs a lot of money to set up EICUs. Uh, this was a piece that uh, I ran in our journal last year, basically saying, uh, you know, what do you have to do to make EICU cost effective? Uh, and the, the, the correct answer is, is that uh, you, you really have to somehow take about six, $700 out of the cost of care of an individual patient in order to make EICU cost effective. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the, on, the, on the numbers there, but suffice it to say, it's not all that expensive to operate if you can find about those types of numbers to remove. Well, getting those savings doesn't happen instantaneously. This is Craig Lilly's paper published earlier this year in JAMA. It was online late last year. But uh, the key thing is, is that uh, it takes time to, to develop the improvements. Case volumes had to go up, lengths of stay had to go down, and then ultimately when you start looking at, uh, at the uh, per case revenue and the per case cost, it took about three years to those lines to start separating out. So there's a lag time when you bring telemedicine up, and many medical institutions worry about you know, seeing those returns uh, within a year or two, it just doesn't happen that way. What we decided to do is to say, you know, Emory really invested heavily in the advanced practice provider model, and that enabled us to have some fewer physicians at the bedside. And if we pulled together the idea that the supervising physician didn't need to be physically adjacent to the advanced practice provider, we would end up with a new model of care. We actually sold this to CMS. Uh, and part of what we sold to CMS with this novel care delivery model is that we weren't just about a new workforce and a new technology. We're actually re-engineering the social relationships of critical care. Because when you create an EICU environment, you, you fundamentally change the communication structure between doctors and nurses. It's the only way you make an EICU run. And when you get to frequent, timely, accurate, problem-solving focused communication, you start driving very tightly aligned goals, knowledge, and in fact, respect. So the question is, does it work? If you put doctors and nurses uh, in an EICU core and you have APPs at the bedside, what do the outcomes look like? Again, we're currently 16 locations with our EICU, 136 beds across five hospitals. That number is soon to change. 
here are our data, okay? This is one of our community-based hospitals, okay? It is actually sort of a hybrid university community-based hospital, but uh, this is a, a fairly important point. We actually uh, had data from very early on when we went up. Uh, you're looking at the length of stay ratios. It's actual over predicted. The blue line is a ratio of one. Above the line is bad. Below the line is good. And as we introduced nurses into the system, we saw that uh, the ICU lengths of stay came down somewhat. The hospital lengths of stay, we weren't making a huge amount of dent in, but we were, did make a dent. We introduced physicians full-time right around here, and the addition of physicians continued the improvement that the doctors put in. Let me make the point here that the impact was generated by having nurses as a second pair of eyes and ears, 24 by 7 by 365. When we, and uh, it, these are actually significant numbers because if we go back in time, and I'm now just going back to the time where we added the doctors, so you're looking there at about uh, two years and three months worth of data, we saved about 21,000 ICU days. In other words, and I'll do the math for you, we actually built effectively a 20-bed ICU, occupied, staffed, and giving care, 24 at 100% occupancy, 24 by 7 by 365, without actually having to put in any bricks and mortar. The days we saved by putting in the EICU would have been offset by an investment, $3 million a bed to build the thing, so about $60 million there, plus all the staffing stuff that goes with it. It ends up being a bargain. Okay. What about the mortality ratios? Length of stay are fine, but nobody wants to come out of an ICU dead. Okay? Here are the data. Okay? Uh, you'll notice that this was a particularly bad performing ICU when, when uh, we showed up at the door. ICU mortality ratios were like three. Hospital mortality ratios were like two just by introducing the nurses as a second pair of eyes and a senior set of thoughts uh, to support their colleagues at the bedside, we dropped the mortality ratios below one. Okay? Uh, it's not rocket science. You get a second pair of eyes and ears available on demand to help you out, you actually improve outcomes that matter. How many lives did we save since we added the physician? Maybe a thousand. Who knows what those numbers mean, but we consistently see improvements of observed versus expected outcomes over time. When we got the grant from CMS, they said, uh, excuse us, we're going to give you $10,748,332 and no cents. Okay, that's the exact amount. We asked for about $16 million. That's what we got. They said, there's a string attached. We will require a government contractor to have full access to your data, and we, the government, will decide whether you are successful in achieving the triple aims. We will decide if you save lives, improve the experience of care, and reduce costs. I'm not going to show you all the data here, but the bottom line is, is that if we looked at just the federal beneficiary population, which was two-thirds of our patients because ICU patients in our environment are relatively old, if we looked from the time they hit the ICU to 60 days post-discharge, so we couldn't hide the expenses, we couldn't 
delay the transfusion until they got out on the floor. We couldn't hide the readmissions because Medicare sees everything. If the patient goes to a different hospital and gets readmitted, that failure gets tagged to us. Okay? Even so, on average, we saved close to $1,500 for every patient we touched. Now, if you remember what I told you a few minutes ago, we only actually have to save about six or 700. So just run the comparison. This is a cost savings measure. The problem is the revenues don't tend to be terribly well aligned. But if you get into a single you know, accountable care organization or risk model, this isn't even, I mean, it's a no brainer. This is what you want to do. We decreased the rate of 60-day inpatient readmissions. We decreased discharges to SNFs and LTACs. We sent people home. Okay, it's what you want to do. Now, there's a problem. Okay? Most of our work is nighttime work because if somebody gets sick in the hospital in the middle of the day, you know, 11 a.m., you got senior people right and left. You can get resources all the time. 3 a.m., things look different. Okay? Just the fact of the matter. And keeping your eyeballs open and trying to figure out what your uh, sleep-wake cycle is and using coffee as the substitute for sleep, it, it tends to end up being not terribly healthy. Uh, and we know that nurses don't do well with this. I've just put up a slide here of all the bad things that happen when you are a shift worker. But the fact of the matter is, if you're a shift worker, you probably cut two years off your life. Not many people are willing to say, gee, I'd like to serve my patients, but I'm going to cost me two years of life expectancy to do that on average. Um, so shift work unhealthy, what to do? So uh, as I mentioned earlier this morning, we said we're just going to turn night into day. Okay? If we're already providing our services remotely, it doesn't really matter how remotely we're providing them. Okay? So this was a situation we, you know, this is Atlanta at 3 a.m. And, and this is Sydney at 1 p.m. And, and, you know, you decide where you want to be working, okay? You're doing the same work, taking care of the same patients, doing the same services. But for some reason, this is a, a more desirable thing to do because you work day and you sleep at night, okay? We've got a bunch of metrics associated with this. I'm not going to go through all of our data, but the bottom line is, is that People actually perform better, they're healthier, they feel better doing the uh, nighttime stuff, doing that. We, we you know, had a bunch of publicity about it, newspapers and you know, articles and so forth. It's not a terribly difficult concept to master. People prefer to work in the daytime as opposed to, uh, as opposed to working at night. So here's what the travelers said, okay? And I want to spend a moment on this. Because understand, you can't effectively care for patients unless you have a workforce that is enthusiastic about caring for patients. I didn't realize how terrible I felt working nights until I started doing my night work in daylight. Okay? Working shoulder to shoulder with the same doctor for six weeks, three to four shifts a week, just us in Sydney, I got to know him professionally and personally. We're a much better team today than we ever could have become in Atlanta. And then finally, seven out of seven travelers have said, when are we going back? I want to go. Okay? This is actually what we're doing. Okay? 
we are selecting and training for teamwork. Our job design really focuses on the relationship and the task allocations among nurses and physicians. The displays here, it's all the same display. We're all using the same advanced workstation. It does mean that we, there is frequent communication. It's intense. It happens in real time. Communications have to be perfect. And when we start looking at our outcomes, yeah, quality and safety is improved. Yeah, time and cost efficiency is improved. This thing here, this provider wellness thing, yeah, it actually makes a difference. People want to work in our environment because they see it as nurturing, supportive, and oh yes, they're doing important work. We're going to uh, actually do this again. We're, we're going to do 2.0. This time we're going to go to Perth, and the reason we're going to go to Perth is it's exactly opposite the east coast of the United States. So it is now uh, 20 minutes of 1 p.m. here. It's 20 minutes before 1 a.m. there. Okay? It moves one hour when there's daylight savings time, uh, and you get to 8A and 8P, but it, it's exactly opposite. The night shift here is 7A, 7P to 7A turns out to be 7P to 7A there, or 8A, 8A to 8P there. Just easier to do. And it, it's kind of a nice area, although Perth is the most isolated uh, city on earth, isolated big city on earth, it's two and a half million people. It's a big city with botanical gardens and museums and you know all the cultural stuff. And oh yeah, you're five miles from the Indian Ocean. So you know you can go live at the beach and do your work in daylight. Right, so this is what I've told you so far. The workforce is changing, task allocations are changing, technologies are evolving. Co-locating critical caregivers is important. Winning depends on getting the right relationships among those who are giving care. Relational coordination seems to matter. And the big take home, take care of the workforce so they can take care of the patients. Part of patient-focused care is actually caring for the workforce. I want to switch gears now and talk about situation awareness. Micah Ensley. Uh, who invented this concept, later became uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, assistant secretaries for the Air Force, basically came up with the idea and said, what do we need to make safe and effective decisions in high-risk situations? And she said, we need three things. We need to be able to perceive the data that's there. If the data are over in an inbox and we don't know about them, they're no good. We have all this data in front of us. We have to get a picture of what the data actually mean. And then we have to be able to project into the future. What will happen if I do nothing or I do A or B or C? What are outcomes A prime, B prime, and C prime going to look like? And it feels right. That thing there, you've got a GPS, right? I mean, it's on your iPhone or something like that. Why does this feel right? Because you perceive the data. That's where the car is, and this is my environment. You comprehend it because it's all displayed in a way you know where to look, and it projects into the future. If you follow the magenta line, you make the left turn, you get to your destination. Situation awareness is something we engineer for in many important things in life. We do not engineer for it in critical care. Do not tell me that your EPIC system is engineered for situation awareness, because I watched you guys click through the screens trying to find the datum you wanted to make the decision you wanted to make. Um, 
we are, we are on a journey in critical care. So down at the bottom there, you see some nurses and patient at a bedside, and you got somebody's hand there on a pulse. Now, we, that was the era of just trying to sense things. Up at the top there, th this is the cowling of an airplane, and, and this is the gas gauge. There's a wire there on a cork. When the wire gets down closer to the little bend, you're going to run out of gas. So it is simple sense sort of things. I was in Dan Hur's unit earlier today, and his unit, hey, get all this stuff in the room, okay? 18 different devices, right? You got the vent with all its stuff, the IV pumps, the CRT, which is in every one of his ECMO circuits and so forth. Exactly the same sort of thing that we had in the DC-6s with all these little round gauges and switches everywhere. And the system depends on Dan and his team actually knowing how to pull all those 18 different pieces of information together simultaneously to figure out if I believe the question was, Dan, which, should we start antibiotics? Yeah, is this thing an infiltrate? Did you decide to start the antibiotics or not? All right, so they started the antibiotics. But it took all that stuff and then finally a conversation with the guru, are we going to make this decision? Well, um, this is the flight deck of a 787, okay? with computer screens. I don't know if you can see these little things here. These are heads-up displays, so the pilot can actually look through the displays, see the data he or she needs without having to do this all the time, okay? okay. This is the sick bay of one of the Starship's Enterprise. I don't remember which version it was, but it all looked the same. All the data was in the same place, and it's all very simplified. You all just look in the same place. You always find the data, same place, same time. So. When I'm flying the airplane, okay, the goal here is for me to see that at the end of the approach. I want to see the runway lights and not the side of a building, okay? And to do that, I actually have a display that says if you fly through, in this case, the little green boxes, there's a little runway there at the end. And if I, you know, follow the display, I'm going to actually see that, okay? Uh, and this is what the displays look like and so forth. But I'm not there alone. Okay? I'm not there alone. There's another person there with this display looking at that. I got an air traffic controller who's keeping other airplanes away from me and keeping me from flying into a thunderstorm. And my suggestion is, is that this is what we have to do for situation awareness and patient care. We have to have stuff at the bedside that tells us what the, most, the next best step is. And we need to have people doing population management of the patients. That's what's going to keep us safe. Now, how is this evolving? These, this is the Philips eCare Manager. Okay? It's a different screen than you see in Epic. This was the original mock-up. Okay? And it's gone through some evolution and some further evolution. But basically, it gives a summary of what's going on with the patient, some communication tools over here, some recent blood pressure and heart rate data, um, spark lines to show you trends of just about everything, I and O balances and so forth, temperature and white count curves, one screen where the data is in the same place every time, you get much more efficient in interpreting what's going on. We don't have those types of resources at the bedside today. We don't have that level of simplification that allows you in one glance to get a picture of what all the systems of the patient look like. Mark does in his environment, so maybe I'll share it with you. Now, it's not yet as advanced as what I've got 
on the panel in the airplane because, you know, again, I not only have what the situation is, but I have those little magenta boxes over here telling me where I ought to be flying to keep myself out of trouble. There are population management tools. Everything we do in the ICU today is basically one patient by one patient by one patient. You know, they, during rounds, the, the, the computer is on wheels. They move from one bed to the next. And, you know, if something happens two beds down, you can't remember what you did. But if we're going to figure out who to send where or when, we need population management tools. This was the, the first version of the tools, the Philips Orbs and so forth. This is the new version, which is uh, going to be released soon. And I'm not even going to walk you through the details of it. I'm simply going to show you this picture here, okay, and say the following. This is some kind of risk score. If you're in yellow, it's moderate risk. If you're in red, it's probably severe risk. So the bigger numbers in red are problematic. And when you have changes, and they're big changes, maybe that is the patient you would like to look at. And then you can look over here and you can even drill down and figure out what's been changing, CNS issues, renal issues, respiratory, cardio. And you can get an idea really in a glance, which bed do I want to go look at and what do I want to go looking for? It doesn't tell you what's wrong, but at least tells you who it is you might want to pay attention to now. Okay? These tools are coming. This is a different representation of how you might want to do things. This is from my friend Randall Mormon at the University of Virginia. And these are basically patient deviations from some kind of a normal place. So you have little risk things over here, but the ones that are big, fat, red with big numbers, you might want to go take a look at patient 87 and 93. This has to do with risks of reintubation and risk of needing to be transfused and so forth. Point is, is that a simple display may be sufficient to tell you who you want to go look at. We've hidden all the internals here. You can drill down and say why this person is at risk, but you don't necessarily need to do that on every patient. You just need to be able to drill down on the ones where the risk seems to be big. Pay attention. Now, when I was flying up here in my airplane uh, a couple of days ago, I was handled through the Potomac Tracon. This is air traffic control for the entire Washington region. And I was handed off four times, but the handoffs were really from somebody sitting here to the guy sitting here to the guy sitting here to the guy sitting here. And they're all looking at this kind of population display. They know the altitudes, they know the airspeeds, they know everything that's going on in what for them is a simplified display so they can figure out how they want to sequence the airplanes where to turn us. We don't have that yet in critical care, but my argument is, yeah, we got to go there. So technology is refining, but it's also redefining how we approach our patients and our tasks. I will tell you that the high-risk care we do, we have to be utterly reliable in finding the problems as they crop up, and we can't depend on somebody noticing, hey, did, did you know the guy's white count was down below 4,000 today? That, that has to be brought into the foreground and in a way that's utterly reliable. Now, here's the big change. We don't have to have everybody physically at the bedside. We've shown that we can put people on the other side of the earth and have them fully participate in care. And that ought to cause us to ask, how do we want to reallocate tasks today and then on into the future? 
what's the point of the people, the technology, and the organization? It's getting to the right care right now, every patient, every time. And this raises the question of what does precision medicine look like in the acute care space? I've mentioned this a little earlier today. There are four big V's of data. We have a lot of data. It's moving at a high rate. It comes in many forms. It's in doubt in many of the cases in critical care. I can tell you when I get data on rounds, about 20% of the data is wrong. It's out of date. They confused it with another patient. They forgot to tell me some key piece of information. They're telling me about a drug that's being given even though it was discontinued yesterday. Errors creep in, okay? Maybe they don't in your environment, but they do in mine. The problem is, is that I can't listen to every datum. I'm not even sure we can afford to collect every datum. So we've got to figure out which of those data actually rise to decision-making importance. That's a challenge we have yet to face. But I'm going to tell you in order to get there, we need to have data scientists, okay? And any one of you who is in training to be a critical care physician ought to start asking yourself, do I have the skill set today to manage the large amounts of data that we're going to be presented with tomorrow? Because I can tell you that Dr. Who there is collecting every element of the physiologic data for reprocessing and redisplay. I just accepted a paper on bedside desktop uh, flow cytometry. So you're going to have more or less instantaneous information on the cellular as well as the uh, soluble components of your patient's immune system. So you now are going to have a hundred-dimensional space where the patient's going to be moving, you're going to have to figure out what to do with it in the context of everything else. So you're going to need to be a subject matter expert, you're going to need to understand the math and statistics, and you're going to need to understand how to put the data elements together. And if you think somebody else is going to do that for you, guess again, that is going to be a requisite critical care skill. Now, let me talk a little bit as I finish up about sepsis. Okay, and what we're doing around sepsis at the moment. Um, sepsis three definition, you've got to have suspicion of infection, meaning that you've got to have uh, somebody getting blood cultures and giving antibiotics. You also have to have some evidence of organ dysfunction. We use a change in a SOFA score. Question is how to operationalize that definition. This is how we've operationalized it. If you want me to draw a picture, you have to have suspicion of infection sometime in that range, minus 24 to plus 12. And sometime in that range, you have to have an organ failure score change enough. If it does, we say it is sepsis 3. Um, if we look at, uh, this is just one shot of our database, 4,300 odd uh, patients with ICU onset sepsis. Uh, we get about one and a quarter million overlapping one-hour windows, and of those windows, only 2% meet the sepsis-3 criteria. So we got to ask, how can we predict when those windows are going to turn positive? We know that we've got a huge amount. We know that very few of those windows actually signal, yes, the patient is septic. How can we predict? Um, when the patient's going to become septic. So we split them into training and testing cohorts. We've got the prediction points, the clinical recognition of sepsis, organ dysfunction, uh, and uh, the, the, you know, the onset of, of one of the two. 
and we ask how early can we predict sepsis, how, how far in advance can we find the onset of sepsis? Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the statistics, but here are data on finding sepsis four hours before the patient actually becomes septic. It's all you know, uh, preliminary work with standard uh, statistical models, but we can find, um, and, and the curves are essentially identical, um, with you know, 87-88% area under the curve, which is pretty high significance, we can tell you four hours in advance of when somebody's going to meet sepsis-3 criteria. Um, we actually reduced the features because there were 127 features that went into the model. We've knocked it down to 85. And then we ask uh, on the prediction window, how far in advance, four hours, six hours, eight hours, 12 hours in advance of sepsis, uh, can, we, uh, can we find the patient? We have the big model, the reduced model. We put the two models together. They're almost superimposable. And the fact is, is that we can find... Uh, the uh, patient who is going to become septic uh, with an area under the curve of about 85, 87% uh, uh, out here four hours in advance. And 12 hours in advance, we're still at an AUC of 0.84. So the footprints of who's going to become sick are already in the data. All we have to do is use computational resources to find those patients, and we will get better about giving those antibiotics, which now we know save lives. All right, so we, we can predict meaningful decompensation. We can leverage existing resources and infrastructure to make predictions in real time. And clearly, this type of prediction has the potential to save lives, save money, and improve outcomes. All right, so let me finish up by saying, as I look at next generation critical care, it's about figuring out who's going to do what tasks. The initials after your name are meaningless, okay? They, they no longer signify what tasks you can and should be doing. It's all going to be enabled with technology, okay? The technology is not going to stop, and we're going to have to figure out how to use it. In particular, the telecommunication thing, I think, is key. Because once you have the telecommunication and the task, it doesn't matter where people are, matters what they do, provided they get the relationships right. And getting the relationships right is something we should be very proud of in critical care. We have a lot of stuff we can do moving forward. The team concept, which was pioneered in critical care, is going to have to do some quantum growth to get the full realization of the benefit of, of telemed. Situation awareness, uh, perceiving the data, knowing the data are out there, getting the right sort of display, comprehending it because the displays make sense, coordinating the data, yeah, that's important. And only when you have those types of displays at an individual or population level can you begin to start using these newer predictive tools to head off critical illness or critical deterioration before it becomes clinically apparent. That's my view of next generation critical care. I'd love to hear yours. Thank you.
I'm sorry. Uh, terrific talk. Thank you. Uh, first question is, uh, in your Georgia model uh, with the uh, demonstration grant, were they all on the same EHR or were they variable EHRs? So the question was, when we start looking at, at the telemed and the dis distribution, we, we actually have to be on the same data platform. And the answer is, originally, no. So the Emory hospitals were all Cerner shops. But we had one hospital that didn't even have an EMR. They were using the Philips eCare Manager tool as their EMR. They were still in paper chart land. I believe that the importance of the sort of composite displays is that they have to be completely agnostic to where the data are coming from. If you depend on somebody who lives in an epic environment to be proficient with Cerner or McKesson or any of these other systems, you're not taking advantage of what machines can do in terms of redisplay. Now, in the past, it's been impossible to get data out of the big EMRs. They all regarded as proprietary. But now that interoperability is no longer a dirty business word but a federal requirement, they're starting to open the gates. What's even more important, and I didn't show the data here today, is that we are doing some experimentation with FHIR enabling our databases. FHIR, F-H-I-R, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource. It's a system of data messaging. It's a stripped down HL7 version three. But what's important about it is that you can build apps on it. Just like you have on your cell phone, your, your, your cell phones, you have all these apps. The app developers have no knowledge of what's inside the architecture of the cell phone. They just have a very simple API that says, here, here are our data structures and our descriptions. You decide how you want to display it. Okay? And you can build apps that are very user friendly in really very short periods of time once you have these fire-enabled displays. So the, the, the fire-enabled databases. So I, I think that the interoperability question not only needed to be solved, but, but we're pretty close to solving it. It doesn't deal with the text information, it doesn't deal with the radiology reports, and it doesn't deal with the nurse at the bedside saying the patient is diaphoretic. Okay? But if we can get the databases to actually talk to one another and layer on top of one another so we can begin to develop these composite displays, yeah, I think we're going to make significant progress. So uh, comment on that uh, is uh, one of, we work in seven different EHRs, seven different CPOEs, and I cannot get people to agree on a lexicon. And I would encourage you through the journal and your government contacts to have a common lexicon created or ag agreed upon. Uh, I could order saline and get nose drops, and I could order saline and get an IV fluid, depending look, on which hospital. Look, it's worse than that. If you look at your lab data, you've got 10 different hemoglobins. Okay? I mean, we, we, we live in this Tower of Babel. So the, the answer is, is that we have to simplify and recognize that I don't need to know uh, the latest antibody to treat rheumatoid arthritis in the ICU. Okay? I, I need a much simplified uh, dictionary uh, that we can all agree upon because you don't really care if the hemoglobin was taken from the uh, 
the Coulter counter or from a bedside blood gas thing, you want to know that the trend is reliable. You actually don't care so much about the absolute value, but you would like to know that this datum and this datum are really comparable. So Dr. Buckman, I, I have a question. So all of the things that you're touching on, that response is basically artificial intelligence. You know, whether it's in terms of prognostication, med-med interactions, early warning, radiology, whatever. You know, it, it applies to pretty much every realm within our field. So along with that, you touch on situation awareness. I, I went to a talk a, a couple years ago by uh, Steve Wozniak that helped create Apple, and he distinguished the success that Apple had from PCs by the fact that uh, Apple, in his words, used um, human models to determine how humans think, whereas PCs forced humans to learn DOS, or mm -hmm. you know, and sort of um, uh, so linking the two, both uh, artificial intelligence along with um, a the situation awareness that you uh, brought up. How much of medicine, you know, a decade, two decades from now, do you anticipate actually being necessary to come from humans? I mean. It, I mean, I, I see our role not just, you, you know, you talk about breaking down silos among individuals' titles, but, um, I mean, how, really, how relevant are we going to be? I, I think the job is going to change, okay? I mean, quite frankly, we don't remember stuff. We remember stuff with huge amounts of bias. I remember the complications I had much more clearly than the patients who did well. Uh, we, we end up with all sorts of belief biases. You know, I talked about it this morning with what works and what doesn't in sepsis. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is that the artificial intelligence is going to make a lot of this decision, make a lot of these decisions for us. If you think about your modern ventilators today, you take the Hamilton Galileo G5 series, they have a setting called ASV, Adaptive Support Mode. And basically it looks at the last six breaths, decides, what the work of breathing is going to be and give, offers the optimal choice for the volume and the interval for the next breath using you know, Job's estimate of, uh, of work of breathing. Uh, so we're seeing increasingly closed loop structures. If you look at you know, the trauma resuscitation burn wounds, for example, Jose Salinas down at uh, San Antonio has got a closed loop structure for how much fluid to give the burn patient in our N plus one based on the urine outputs and, and volume deliveries over the past three hours, it tracks it much more reliably than any human is going to be. So we're starting to see these semi-closed loop systems. This is actually a good thing because it raises us out of the, can I remember all these little tasks, to the question of what direction do I want to go? The artificial intelligence will never tell you the decision to make. It will, however, provide you with what it thinks is the preferred path and the advantages and costs of the various options. So we're, we're going to be less and less involved twiddling stuff because the systems can do it and they can learn the responses far faster than we can, much the same way the autopilot flies the airplane more reliably than I do. The autopilot can never tell me which airport I want to land at and why. If those, um, the free time you know, that we may have, it would be more geared and available towards uh, in the culture change that you also suggest is equally important. 
you know, in interacting with the families, interacting with one another to create, you know, a more efficient system. I'll tell you, if, if any of your trainees are not leveraging the opportunity to train in telemedicine today, you're out of your minds, okay? You, telemedicine skills are going to be essential, and for at least the foreseeable future, they're marketable. It, it would be crazy not to avail yourself of that opportunity because this is how care is going to be delivered. Tim, uh, great. another great talk and very uh, thought-provoking. Is there a danger in us becoming too reliant on these systems? The system goes down and now we don't remember how to actually look at the patient, look at the lab values ourselves, and, and come to decisions. So the, the question is, are we in danger of surrendering to the machines? I think the danger is there, but I think that the ability to gain experience and, and look at situations and recognize what the best outcomes are, um, I think that's actually going to be improved, and, and here's why. We spend a lot of time doing, but not enough about thinking about what we've done. We can actually take those sorts of things back into simulators all the way to virtual reality with increasing fidelity and allow us to try out the things that we are less and less sure of. In fact, I think the machines are going to enable us to gain experience that we could not otherwise have because there will be enough data to actually look at various outcomes and various trajectories and help us recognize them earlier and the consequences of our decisions. So uh, I view the glass here definitely as half full, not half empty. Yeah. Thank you for a great talk. I, um, I think one thing that's been it's challenging for me is uh, it, it's clear that we need to change the types of docs that we're producing because the responsibilities are changing. How do we train our trainees uh, to meet those demands? And the, the answer obviously is, well, there's other things to learn. You, you mentioned being a data scientist. That's a large commitment to become an expert data scientist. And critical care training, you mentioned the 10-year process that we've gone through. How do we fit this in? What, what gets left behind if 90% of our jobs can be done by advanced practice practitioners? Um, do, we, do we need to be trained in all of those aspects of the care if we're not providing them ourselves? Um, and, and then how do we evaluate our trainees? Because that part of things has been fairly static and hasn't kept up with these changes. Show of hands of who are the trainees in the room. Just a quick show of hands. Okay. So I have some good news and I have some bad news. Okay? Here's the good news. The people who are training you today, that would include me, we really do care about your success. We want you to be competent, safe, efficient. We actually want you to be visionary as well. Here's the bad news. I can't tell you what your world is going to look like can make some predictions, but there's no certainty. What I can tell you is that what I learned as a medical student was different than I did as an intern, was different than I thought about organizing as a chief resident, was different than what I did in my early years as an attending, which is completely and utterly different 
than what I do today. You had told me 10 years ago I was going to be talking about the importance of telemedicine and interpersonal relationships in the safe and effective delivery of critical care. I would have said, excuse me? What, what are you talking about? Okay. The world that we are bequeathing to you okay, is a world that we only know dimly what we do today and we know nothing about tomorrow. Where I can tell you there's a difference is most successful people are going to change and they're going to embrace change and they're going to look forward to a future where the problems you're managing are very different and the way you manage them are very different. When I was growing up as a medical student, okay, there was we heard about this thing called Kaposi sarcoma, didn't know why it was showing up. Okay? And then right around 1981, we heard about the, you know, the AIDS virus. And we lived through a period where everybody with that virus died. They showed up in the ICU. We had no idea what we were doing. We did the best we could. They died anyway. Then heart therapy came along. All of a sudden, we were not dealing with HIV as the primary problem. We were only dealing with the secondary immune suppression. We figured out how to manage that. Okay? Today, we don't even think twice when the patient shows up with HIV. We just make sure that, you know, we've got their immune system kind of tailored where we want them to. That, a huge arc of change. You know, 10 years ago, if you told me that ECMO was going to be a routine in most ICUs that I visit, I would have said, you're crazy. ECMO doesn't work. It only works with Bob Bartlett, and he doesn't always tell the truth. Okay? Okay? But H1N1 said if you apply ECMO early to fundamentally young, healthy people, you get a bunch of survivors. And then you had the CSER trial come out and said, gee, with a specialized center and wise selection of patients, you get pretty good outcomes. And now you have Dan Hur who grew up with, with that process here, and you've got you know, people with you know, femoral cannulations walking around the unit. Okay? If you told me that 10 years ago, I would have said, excuse me, you're crazy. But here we are. Uh, so for, as, a, as a trainee, stay loose. Look at fields outside your own. Ask yourself what's going on elsewhere in medicine and technology and things that might touch your patients. Pervasive monitoring, artificial intelligence and so forth. And have the courage to say, what if? What if this was actually brought to my environment? What would change? Because, it, you know, as Alan Kay remarked, it, the best way to predict the future is actually to be the person inventing it. Okay. Um, you have an incredible resource here. You are in an incredibly data-rich environment compared to most other places I visit. Peter over there, he, he, he got all the data. Okay, and he can gets it from every unit, can bring it back to you, and can start you on this process of what can we simplify, what, how can we peer over the time horizon into the future. I wouldn't squander that opportunity. I would not squander the opportunity to actually dig into the data and see what it means for you to be in the middle of it, not to get it pre-processed. And then I would say, how if we were to look at all the tasks in the IC, and the reason to look at the tasks is because 
labor is your biggest expense in an ICU. It's not the ECMO cannulas, okay? It's not the cost of that Craig bed that stands people up. Your biggest cost is labor, okay? And you have the cost of turnover of labor when people retire and leave and so forth, okay? If you want to actually get into the guts of that, you actually have to start breaking the tasks down and say, who can do what? And what that means is physician leaders in the ICU, because physicians are always going to be the leaders in the ICU, you better become good at systems engineering and systems management. Your job is not to decide the glucose dose that's going to take care of that patient's hyperglycemia. Your job is to develop a system approach that will enable all the other people to become aware in real time when somebody's glucose is getting out of control and have a reliable fix for it. Now, these are exciting times. Good luck. Godspeed. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Dr. Buckman. That's wonderful.